This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. And I uh, this is Keith Williams. Welcome to the works. And we have Diane Hats here with us today as our scheduled guest. Welcome to the program, Diane. Thank you, Keith. Thank you so much for having me. Um, can you hear me? Yes, now I can. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, welcome to the program, Diane. Thank you, Keith. Um, the first question we ask everybody is, uh, uh, tell the audience who you are and what you do. So my name is Diane Hatz. Um, I've had a bit of a multifaceted career. I started many, many, many years ago in the 90s in the music industry, spent about 10 years working in a record company and different aspects of it. I uh, was told by the CFO of a large record company that I would never get promoted. So I left and I ended up at a small nonprofit where I started off helping shut down factory farms. I helped start the national movement of healthy food to get people to understand what it was. Um, I lived in New York City for 30 years, and next week, it'll be two years ago, I left Manhattan and moved to New Mexico. And a year ago, I decided to leave the food movement. Um, COVID had a lot to do with it. Like my business sort of went under. I was putting on events, et cetera. But I am now a full-time fiction writer. So I just published my first fiction book in September. Um. So um, tell us about your book. Sure. So it's absurdist fiction. Some people call it magic realism. So it's a little zany, um, but it's based on my time working in the music industry. I, um, I was a, an assistant and I was around before Me Too was a movement. So it's basically the main character's attempts to get herself out of a job that her boss won't let her go from. And it's her search for herself in this crazy environment. And there's all these like zany characters. Um, the woman, the PR woman, her body parts fall off and she has to re-glue them constantly because she's always so stressed out. So all the characters have different quirks about them. And it's a fast, easy, fun read. Um, you can take it on a surface level and just enjoy it, or you can go underneath and it's, fiction, but it's based on my experiences working in the music industry. Keith, you're on mute if you don't know. Oh. Okay. What, what prompted you to write this book? I was going insane. Um, I had spent three years in London getting my master's degree in creative writing. I had always wanted to be a writer. So when I was, I'll back up a little. When I was a teenager, I loved The Who, the rock band. I wanted to be taken seriously. So I started publishing a fanzine. That got me into grad school for creative writing. I also wanted to live in London for a few years. Came back. Um, I grew up in Delaware finished my thesis. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? I don't think I should work in the industry. I want to like do my art in. So I'm like, I'll work in the music industry while I um, write books. What I didn't realize is that corporate, I think anything is not creative. So I was very frustrated. I was, I'm not suited to be an assistant. I'm not suited to work in a large company. Um, I'm more of an entrepreneurial type. So I was just so frustrated that I was able to 
do, I guess, I don't want to say to kill two birds with one stone, but I was able to both save my sanity and write a book about my experiences there. And it also chronicles in the 1990s, um, foreign companies were starting to buy out music. And I grew up in an era where rock and roll was serious. Like music was serious. Napster was just coming out and getting ready to change everything. There were no downloads. There was no social media. I mean, computers were just coming in. So the book chronicles the demise of the corporate music industry and also what still happens. I actually just saw on the news, the UN just came out with a workplace report and employee abuse is still rampant, um, especially to women and minorities. So this book is still very current. Um, it's about, I think, what happens in many large companies where people in power are given a certain freedom um, to exert control in inappropriate ways. And that's in the book, but it's funny stuff. It's like the character interviews with people and one of the people, someone who reviewed it said, don't eat while you're reading the booger scene. The guy's rolling around a ball of snot. Like, so it's symbolic and it's gross. And it's the assistant, Alex, her boss yells at her all the time. And I had a boss that would do that. Um, and I went in his office one day and this vein, like in his forehead was pulsing. And I just envisioned it exploding so in the book her boss explodes blood vessels she has to sew him up and that's all showing like control um demeaning like how demeaning some things could be I mean I, yeah I had to do strange things that were not really within the realm of work and I did it and then that's also another part of it is I did it you know I didn't stand up I didn't fight I have so much respect for the not just women but the people who have stood up to people in power and have said, no, that is outside like my area of expertise. That is not in my job description. I am not doing that. I am not picking up your children, you know, and washing their feet. And, and it's insane what some people are made to do. So I really am trying to highlight it in a surrealistic, absurdist kind of way to make it pa more palatable to certain people who like that type of fiction. Uh, you say you felt like you needed to get out of the, you say you felt like you needed to get out of the corporate world. Oh yeah. Um, and that you are an entrepreneur, you know, at heart. Well, I am an entrepreneur. I'm an indie publishing company. I indie published my book. I'm a startup. I invested in myself rather than look for like a VC. I mentored startups in food. I know what happens and how much control a VC person has. So I was fortunate. I had saved some money. So I am and an, I'm an author entrepreneur. Oh, wow. Okay. So we have uh, another, because I interviewed uh, uh, an, a, a publisher who decided to, <clears throat> excuse me, go into the publishing business and this person is like you it's a a startup but it's already gaining uh momentum in the you know the publishing oh good for uh, that industry because uh uh you know to me i think they're very selective in who they actually you know want uh to you know to publish that has always you know, been that way. And we find out that a lot of people are going uh, self-publish um, no. because they control over, uh, you know, what they write. They have control over uh, the type of audience that they have. They pretty much have control over everything. And so I think a lot of people uh, I have seen uh, that are going the, the indie route. Yes. So and you said the right word because I was going to correct you when you said self-published. Self-published is still looked down upon by a lot of people. Self-publishing, that term was used back in the early 2000s when people, their vanity presses and people were putting their own books out. I indie published and I am a publishing company and that's part of my startup. So I happen to have a consulting company. I consulted in food mm -hmm. stuff 
before COVID. So I could still use my company. So it made it a bit easier for the technical setup, but my LLC is my publishing company. So I am also very selective about the writers I choose because I'm the writer that I've chosen. So I'm publishing my own work. I will say this for anyone who wants to do it. Um, I have shed more tears than one person should shed in a lifetime over the last year. It, it's it's confusing. It's the Wild West. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I'm actually, I have a Substack newsletter. I've decided that next year, my articles are all going to be based on how to indie publish because I want to help people avoid all the pitfalls and mistakes that I made. I mean, if you look, if you look on Amazon, there's two sets of my book because I had to change ISDN numbers. I mean, I don't want to get technical, but I just spent two and a half weeks. My website was down. I didn't know what I was doing. And I transferred the domain when I was just trying to do web hosting. Uh, so um, I had read, I think it was in 21, 50% of all books were indie published. So it's a lot of people are indie publishing. I know it's the next wave. And it's also, you put all this money or all this effort into your book only to have what someone come along, you wait four years, it takes years to get an agent, years then for it to get published. Those people will want you to make changes. You don't have control over your book cover. Like you lose so much control and you're lucky if you're making a buck a book royalty. Whereas if you go do it yourself, you can make five or more dollars per book royalty. And what a lot of people don't realize, whether you're traditionally published at a big publishing company or you do it yourself, they still, you're still expected to hire and pay an editor before your book comes out. So there are days I say I should have gone to a big five because of all the work it is. But I know that after I get over this learning curve, it'll be easier for the next books. Um, personally, I would not do it any other way. Because I worked in corporate music, I know it's not much different. Any large corporation, people are there because they're not entrepreneurs, you know, or they're there waiting to go do something entrepreneurial, but they're, it's a certain personality type that's not aligned with creativity. So does a creative person want an uncreative team to take hold of their book? I also was listening to a podcast recently and the writer, she, I think she was a writer, publisher, work traditional, but basically they said that agents are basically taking nothing unless you have a massive social media following or you're famous. So Indy's the route. You know, and they, and they always say, well, uh, like, for example, if I say, oh, I want to write a book, first thing I hear is, uh, you know, where you got to get a literary agent. Nah. And you know what? I hear that all the time. I want to write a book excuse me. And I have to tell people, well, go write it. Because 80% of the people say they want to write a book, 20% write it, and a much smaller percent get around to publishing it. Now with indie publishing, it's easier. Um, but my advice to anyone who wants to write is just write. It's going to be crap. Your first draft is going to be crap. You just got to write. And you got to write when you don't want to write. You got to write. You got to write, 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 write. And then read. There are certain things you need to learn how to do. Um, but I think everybody has at least one book in them. Uh, and, and ladies and gentlemen, uh, those of you who are watching and listening, you know, if you really want to write a book, you know, go ahead and do it. Uh, I just got one piece of uh, a software that, that can help you with that. It's called Grammarly. Oh, yeah. Grammarly use it and pay for it it's and so much better if you get the paid version i use it for everything i i publish on medium i publish a Substack. i have a newsletter i run everything through grammarly and you know i'm really sorry that uh you know that you because i know you you had a nonprofit, and uh you know you end up shutting it down uh, of food insecurity is still a major issue. It uh, is. That's known in certain parts of the, you know, of the country. I mean, you can never have uh, too many of those type of, you know, organizations. Honestly, uh, 
Keith, it's everywhere. And uh, I'm a little burnout and jaded, but I, I felt like Sisyphus. I was pushing a rock up a hill and it kept falling on me. The people on the ground who are really doing the work, the food justice work, don't get the funding. And these very large nonprofits get millions and millions of dollars and they know how to write a really good report and they have the money to hire people to write the grants to get more money. But people that I knew that were really doing great work weren't getting any funding. I was trying, I had this program called Plan Eat Share because I noticed that people around the country were getting together and planning food in public spaces and letting anyone come and harvest it. And it's a phenomenal idea. It really should take off. And I was trying to bring together who was doing what and then build resources so anybody anywhere could plant gardens like in town squares or a vacant lot anywhere. Some people do it on the front lawn and they just have boxes where they grow food and they just help, everyone can just help themselves. I think that is so crucial. Another thing I did before I left New York City, I co-founded a community fridge. And I don't know if you know what they are, but you just stick a refrigerator outside, plug it in, you get a group together and people donate. You put in what you need, you take out, you know, people take take what they need, you put in what you want. Um, in New York City, in one refrigerator, like that you would have in your kitchen, we were feeding up to 2000 people a week. And I've heard it's still going, they're still feeding people like crazy. And the thing about these fridges, people that go to food banks usually have to fill up forms and show identification. And a lot of people are not comfortable doing that or they don't have it. Community fridges are totally anonymous. You can come 24 seven and help yourself. And I think they have filled a huge need and they really became huge during the pandemic. Um, I think it's unconscionable that anyone goes hungry in this country. Unconscionable. Also, don't get me started on the kind of food people get. So one of the things about the fridge, like we had in these villages, we had a GoFundMe and people who had means or used to live there donated money. So we would go to Trader Joe's. We would go and buy healthy food. I didn't want junk in there. We, we were, we really discouraged soda and any type of crappy food, junk food. It was vegetables and fruits, you know, and, and there's this, this, misnomer that oh yeah you know poor people just want to eat doritos no they can't afford apples you know like no so i'm a huge believer in community fridges what i'm hoping now because i felt i also i'm a little older i aged out um don't get me started on ageism 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 is so real but i sort of aged out of the food movement so and i was aging out of music when i left it but there's a whole new generation of people and I support them. I'm hoping with my writing, like in my book, Rock Gods and Messy Monsters at the back, I have four different nonprofits people could donate to. So I'm hoping that within writing I do, in interviews I do, but also within the book, I can sort of help promote healthy food and healthy food causes. And I actually think I'll have more of an impact that way. I just felt like I was a hamster and I was just running around and around in a circle. Uh, well, yeah, I, um, I'm totally familiar as I'm totally familiar with that. Uh, instead of having like the refrigerators, uh, where, you know, where I'm at, uh, here in Alabama, uh, particularly in Birmingham, uh, we have, you know, there's like, like food cabinets to where yes. you know, people have access to, uh, you got dry goods, you got, uh, fruits and vegetables. And there are some places where they'll have a fridge where, you know, people can, you, you know, get food that has to be, uh, you know, preserved in a uh, refrigerator. So I'm very uh, uh, familiar with that because uh, in the inner city, you basically have to drive like five or 10 miles, right. Right. you know, to get to the nearest grocery store. And it, if you don't have a car, that's a double whammy, you know, right there, because the the bus, you know, system isn't the best. You know, yeah, it's like is. that everywhere. It's like that New York has the same problem. I mean, I think every city, and there are people who don't have cars, who can't pay, don't have the money even to take public transportation, or they have to take like three buses, and it takes forever, and they don't have the time. They're working three jobs. 
I mean, it's, it's unconscionable. That's all I can say. And I was a big believer in empowering people who live in the areas that needed the most to do it themselves. Like we were all volunteer and I had kept hoping we could bring enough funding in from donations to hire someone to manage the fridge who had lost their job, who had grown up in East village, you know, who needed a means to not just feed themselves, but to get their feet back on the ground. And we just weren't able to do it. Um, and grant writing, you know, like a $5,000 grant, you have to fill out like a 20 page report. I tried to do one once and they wanted to know all the office supplies. I was, I don't, I don't know. How do I know how many pens I'm going to purchase over the year for this measly $5,000? So I hope, who is it? Um, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, I think is the one that she's not telling anyone you there's no way to track her down there's no way to apply for funding she's just funding people she finds out about it i'm hoping that more billionaires do things like that where they commit to giving their money away and they support people who really need to be supported i mean the other thing that is wrong with the nonprofit world is you get a grant but it's for the project but it's not for overhead so people can't pay themselves so you know, you have someone running a fridge who needs food from the fridge is wrong. It's wrong. So I'm a huge proponent of a living, you know, living wage. So it's kind of like, a, so it's really kind of like a frustrating thing to do. And I know a lot of people, you know, are burned now because they don't have the, the resources, the funding, right. you know, the manpower, and they decide that they want to to do something else. And, 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 and here's the thing, um, do what you feel that would bring a peace to you, something that, you know, that you want to do that when you get up in the morning that you're looking forward to doing just yes. that. Yes. And buy an extra apple and stick in the community fridge, whether you want to or not, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's not that hard to do. And then, you know, right. anybody can just Google it. Like, you know, community fridge in my area. There's, I forget the group. I think it's, um, it's called Freege, F-R-E-E-D-G-E. -E -E. I think it's freege.org. They have a national map of where fridges are. And you can see if one's in your area. Because what some people do, like in the, in the East Village, they would take ingredients that people, because we had a pantry also and a fridge, but they would take ingredients, go home and cook meals and then individually package them and then put them in the fridge, what that, which I think is great if you don't have a lot of money, but you want to help out. I like for the holidays, you know, if I'm going to buy cranberries, I'll just get two bags. And I don't have a lot of money right now. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a startup, you know, but I just think everybody can do something, you know, and on a, and on a slightly different note with the holidays, I'm going to admit it. I'm not a fan of the holidays and we're recording this, you know, just before Christmas. Um, but I just wrote an article on what to do when you hate the holidays. And I think one of the biggest things people can do is just smile, smile and be nice to the person next, you know, in front of you and behind you in line, like just hold a door open for somebody. You don't know what other people are going through. You don't know how stressed somebody is. You don't know what's going on in their life. And if you just smile, or if you really want to be daring, compliment them. Like if you love someone's boots, just go, oh, I love those boots. You think that's minor both of you are going to feel so good after you have that little interaction. Uh, so basically you are out of the nonprofit business. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. What I'm hoping is after I make my 10 million, I can become a nonprofit, you know, I can become a foundation. So I, I am not working it anymore. I burn out. Um, and it, 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 you know what it is? I hadn't really thought about it it's become corporatized just like music has become corporatized and it wasn't equality for all and it wasn't it, 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 it became about ego and it became about who gets this grant and for me you know other people do really well i just don't feel like the funding was being fairly distributed to people who and really I kind do of, um, and i definitely agree with you on that because when uh the federal government came out with funding uh, for businesses and nonprofits. 
uh, a lot of the large corporations and large nonprofits were the one that got the money. Yes. You know, everyone else got screwed. Yes. Oh, and, and then there's another thing that I, you know, hate as well, and that's uh, giving Tuesday. I can't stand it. I giving, hate it. Giving what? Sorry? Giving Tuesday. It's always oh. uh, November 29th. It's, it's, I think it's, it's, I think I've raised like a hundred bucks out of all my attempts because I, I was small and you know I wasn't the whatever large national organization. And that's who really benefits, yep. you know, from all that. You had the PPP loans that was given out to, you know, large corporations, people that really didn't, you, you know, need the money. And then you had uh, uh, celebrities like. Uh, uh, Brett Favre, who actually took oh. $5 million yeah. uh, from poor folks in Mississippi yeah. that no one is talking about. Oh, no. That he, oh, no. It was all over the news. to give that money back. Did he give he, it back? Because that was, that was all over the news, Keith. I heard about it all the time. And I'm in New Mexico. You know, he needs to, and they, he, you know, he still, you know, had not been held accountable for that. Uh, um. You know, that would frustrate a lot of people. Yeah. You have a desire for a nonprofit, but, you know, where are you going to get the funding? From? You know, where are you going to get the funding from? And that's kind of, you know, pushed people away from, you know, even starting. Right. And you have to be aggressive mm -hmm. and you have to, it's just, you spend more time chasing money than doing the work that you wanted to do. So you burn out, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not, it's just not sustainable to work 20 hours a day. So, uh, so let's, let's move on for that. And let's uh, talk about something that you really like to do, like uh, the indie publishing, you know, uh, you know, this is what is it like being a, a indie publisher? I don't know if I can answer that yet. I mean, I just started this. This all started in September. I've been working toward having the book out since January, February, maybe. Um, some days I'm completely freaked out and I am so scared. And I'm like, what have I done? Because I've taken a big leap and I don't know where I'm going to land. But uh, I haven't been this excited in years you know, within that fear is also excitement. So I wouldn't have it any other way. I believe that anybody who has a dream to do anything should take a jump at some point and try. The only failure is not trying. I don't care if you borrow $100,000 and rent a store and everything goes under because you tried, you won't have to spend the rest of your life regretting not trying. So with indie publishing, I think I'm going to know in the spring, I'm planning to go to the Independent Book Publishers Association Conference so I can then be around other indie authors and indie presses and, you know, just to sort of see the lay of the land. I, I am going to say publicly here that I'd say within 10, 15 20 years at the most indie publishing is going to be corporatized. You know what I mean? It's like, Oh, um, I mean, I was, I was speaking with someone the other week and we were talking about music and how, and, and this person said, you know, grunge and indie and alternative music and indie labels probably would not have come about had corporate record companies not become so big. So I think books and publishing is, there right now that had the big five become not become so big and so impenetrable so many people would not be indie publishing so i think that as long as there are people who keep it creative and remember indie is indie and support each other i think it's one of the most exciting things happening in the world right now i mean it's why i'm doing it but as a business you know it's not crypto <laughs> You know, I like, you know, what I like about it is you, you're going to get back what you put out. The reality yeah. with writing is, 
I read that I read just read that now the average number of books any writer sells is 200 and I refuse to believe that so you have to come in with an unwavering faith in your abilities it sounds like uh there you have experienced some challenges as an indie author is that correct correct everyone does I mean everyone does but it's exciting. You know, it's like if you want to climb a mountain, you know, your challenge is not to fall off the mountain, but you're still going to climb it. And you're going to love it. So um, even the nightmares I've had with I had to get a different ISBN and I changed where I was getting it printed. And, you know, this is like after everything was in motion, I learned so much. And though it might be frustrating, I'm using new parts of my brain. I like I've never felt more creative. Just grocery shopping is more creative for me now. So it's opening up me up in all areas of my life. Um, with regard to the publishing specifically is I'm only publishing myself, but I have the option. If I down the road want to publish other people, you know, I can. Uh, is is uh, Rock Gods and Messy Monsters, is that your first book? It's my first book. It's actually a republish. I'd published it first in 2008 because I was so depressed back then because I couldn't get an agent and I had so many rejections and some of them were nasty. So last spring, a friend of mine from my early days in New York City, we were both temping at the Rainbow Room at the call center and um, and that's in Rockefeller Center. Anyway, we'd lost touch. She had a kid, moved away and she got in touch with me. She's like, Diane, I just found your book and I just read it. And I just shut the cover and I just quit my job. I'm so inspired. So she designed, her name's Cree from Firehorse West. She designed the book cover. Um, she has just opened her own company doing uh, experiential design and conceptual design for pop-ups, retail, et cetera. And we're both, we're going to start a podcast. We think like once a month, we're going to do a thing um, in the new year. So I'm going for it. Uh, yeah, I, I think you already mentioned, you know, what the book is about, but, uh, what message does this book convey? The major message is that sometimes our dreams can be illusions or nightmares, but it's up to us to realize that the door is always open. We can always walk out whatever situation you're in. You can always walk away. doesn't matter how dire you think your situation is, you have the ability to open your eyes to see what's happening and to walk away. And that's really what it's about because this character was stuck in this job and she kept thinking, if I work harder, if I go on one more interview, if I do one more this, then everything will be okay. And it wasn't until, I mean, I don't want to give away the ending, but it, it, it just wasn't until something happened and her eyes were open and she realized she had the power to do something about it. And I think that's true in every aspect of life. And I do understand there are some circumstances where it's more difficult, but I still think each of us can open our eyes and accept that we have the power to do something about it, to take some type of positive action. So that's the basic theme of the whole book. So you, you mentioned earlier that uh, someone had read your book and uh, they decide to uh, uh, change careers, go into a different, uh, you know, endeavor. I kind of see that as a a theme for this book, as you, you know, as you was talking. Was obviously, you had someone, you know, that read that book, you know, and felt that uh, they needed a change, you know, in their life, and they they took that leap of faith, and now, you know, they're on a path that makes them happy. Yes. So if I have a dream for this book, it would be to use it as a catalyst to build a community of people who want to do this type of thing. I've done it. She's done it. I have one other friend who's always said she wanted to write a book. She just finished her first draft because she was inspired by this book. And another friend, she hasn't started, but she got a desk. She's in France. She has her desk in her place set up and she said January 1st, she's starting, she's going to start to write a book. And it doesn't have to be writing a book. Like my friend Cree She's not writing a book. She's doing a design company, but we're all following our dreams. And I, it, it, 
I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but you know, I'm, I'm on the downslide. I wish 20 years ago, I'd had the courage and the support to stand up. So Cree, who had quit her job and we, when we reconnected, she's the person we had many Zooms. Um, I was writing and the book I'm working on now, the new book, I was working on that, but she was the one that convinced me to republish this book. She's like, Diane, this is still relevant. You have it all wrong. It's not about the music industry. It's about finding yourself. It's about its cautionary tale. So she's the reason I started this whole thing. I'm indebted to her forever. We now, we have accountability calls. We, we're talking once a week. We give each other assignments. Yeah, we're really trying to boost each other. And I hope, I really hope I can find a community of people, you know, other people who wanted to come in and we can all support each other because that's how you build a movement. And I believe that humans were not built to work in major corporations and to be told what to do all day long. I do know there's some people who, who just want to raise a family. They're okay doing it. And that's fine. You know, you want to be an accountant, fine. Like be in a large company, fine. But so many people have a creative edge to them that I'm hoping that from this, that like with me increase, there's two of us, my doctor, my GP, she just left. And in my last physical, we started talking and she has a master's in creative writing. We've just started meeting once a week here in Santa Fe where I live. So she's starting a writing. So it's, I truly believe, and it's not me, but this is just something that's been going on. Um, and COVID really accelerated it. I mean, the great resignation, you know, people are finally like, I'm going to go sell those crocheted finger puppets. I think that's great, you know, and I think that people, everyone should try. And we, we know that uh, that creativity has been corporatized and uh, that can lead to mediocrity, uh, stagnation, and it also kills uh, creativity because you can't really be yourself. You you at the mercy of you know whatever that corporation or that business you know had set up, so you really cannot you know be yourself. Um, yes. I you know too have got out of the you know corporate world because I wasn't allowed to be me. Yeah, yeah, me too. And congratulations for getting out. I mean, it, it was probably one of the best things that I have ever done, you know, in my life. And so um, um, I got into community organizing. I'm a podcaster. I run my own business. And I'm in control of what I do. Exactly. Were you scared? Keith, were you scared when you first did it? When you took the leap, when you finally said, I'm doing this? Absolutely. It's yeah. kind of reminds me uh, when I, you know, joined the military and, you know, I was getting off that bus, you know, to, you know, get in formation, you, you know, only for, uh, you know, my drill sergeant to be yelling at me, you know, all the time, you know, and I thought to myself, what did, the, what did I get myself into? And I was like really scared. So I felt that scenario all over, you know, all over again. I was like, what did I just get myself into? Uh, you know, I quit my job uh, for, you know, a number of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons, you know, was because, uh, you know, I was, you know, basically being paid, you know, penny and mm -hmm. I couldn't, you know, live off of that. Uh, and then, you know, management, you know, treating me so bad. Yep. You know, it's like they they like set me up to fail. Yep. Keith, read my book. Send me your address afterwards. I'll mail you one. You'll see what I went through. It's it's I think one of the flaws in corporations is that people who get promoted to manager rarely ever get management training and i was there at one point in the nonprofit world and i was a horrible no, they don't. uh no they don't uh right you know a lot of them that uh a lot of them that you know that go into corporate management don't have a lick uh a, a training and, and you know an education 
is who you know. Exactly. It's, it's not what is not what you know. Exactly. You know. Well, that's the problem because a lot of them don't know a lot about anything and you're under them and you do know some things. And if you try to express your knowledge and share your knowledge, you're just put down. You're just stepped on. Yep. Yeah. I'm like, I am not going to engage myself, you know, like that anymore. I mean, the last job, you know, that I had, you know, I looked my boss in, you know, in the eye and I'm like, I quit. Ah, uh, good for you. I quit. I quit. I quit. <laughs> you know, you know, I just gave him that look like I, you know, you know, I had it here. You know, you're not paying. They're not paying. You know, really well, this is a multi-million dollar corporation. Yeah. And you can yeah. do something. And I just gave him that look. I'm done. I'm out. See ya. Yeah. And, and the you thing know. is, it's like, even if you're, the pay is a huge thing. But you're not treated with, not you, but I was not treated with respect either. You know, and it's like, well, you're not paying me and you're not treating me with respect. Yeah, I've been there, you know, I've been there too. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, it, I'm, 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 hopefully I'm going to see, uh, in, you know, in the near future, why your book is still relevant, you know, in 2022, because, uh, you know, people are like, you know, hey, you know, um, you, you know, I'm more than just a number, you know, I'm right. more than, you, you know, just, you know, a body, you know, that's, you know, making someone else rich. Yep. Well, that's, that's what it goes down to is, oh, I'm working 18 hours a day to make someone else rich? No. No. I'm like, I want to get paid too. Yeah. It, it and blows you know, and it's, it's not as easy, you know, it's not as easy to take that leap of faith as people Correct. You know, romantic, you know, science because it's it's a lot of work. Uh, like, for example, in you know, community organizing work, you you know, everyone romanticizes it because you know, you're always on TV. I always, you know, see you on the news. Blah 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 blah. But these folks have no idea the work that goes yeah. behind that. You know, behind the scenes. You know. Yeah. Uh, the the planning, you know, the meeting, the uh, the execution, you know, no one wants to hear that. But everybody wants to be on TV. Everybody wants to be on the radio. Everybody wants to be interviewed, you know, for a newspaper and magazine. But everybody don't have the slightest clue what goes on behind the scenes. And that's no. just any, that's just anything. You know, I would, you I, writing a book or you going right. to business, right? Do the same thing, right? And I would encourage them to go organize something, you know, because I agree with you. There's talkers and doers, you know, and I'm not I'm not faulting the talkers. The talkers talk. We need talkers, but talkers are not doers. So, you, you know, know, some of them they talk too much. <laughs> it, it's, gonna... like, it's like it's like ninety five percent talking. And five percent yeah. work, and you know what? Those ninety-five percent are the ones that'll get the grant money, and the ones who are doing all the work. That's too that's hard a, working. That's yeah. that's that's a huge. That's a problem. I know. You I know, know. You know. That, you know. That's a huge problem. I know. Uh, you know. As a matter of fact, you know the people that got these loans and you know and grants and stuff. You know, and, and stuff. Number one, they didn't need it. And then number two, you had you had a lot of folks that, you know, they really didn't have a business and they really didn't have, you yeah. know, a nonprofit. They got caught spending that money on themselves. Yeah. You know, to where that money could have been used to, you know, someone who was actually, you know, doing the work. I mean, you said so yourself. You know, these were talkers. They knew, you know, they knew how to. They knew how to play the game. They talked yep. their way, you know, into getting that money, money that they did not need. Yeah, I heard it was basically gone before it was even opened up because the large corporations took so much of it. Yep. It, it was, it was just, yeah. I, I think it was, a, it was a well-intentioned effort, but I don't understand um, how people can be so greedy. 
I just don't. I mean, if if I if I had a multi-billion dollar company, I would spend my time giving college scholarships to the children of all my workers and to make sure that they had a wage they could live off of and, you know, provide low interest loans if they want to buy a house, like do things to help the people working for me. I don't understand how companies just cut corners and they think people are going to take it. And that's, that's where I think it's gotten to, you know, and they, uh, I saw these, all these great resignation, like segments on shows and and I remember like Savannah Guthrie, who I love, and she's like, well, just work harder, work hard and get to the top. No lady, no, you were lucky. I know a lot of people that worked really hard who never got anywhere. So, you know, people are like, I'm busting my butt for somebody else's gain. You're not paying me. I'm done. I think COVID like really tipped a lot of people over the edge. And I do wonder where, where they are. I mean, they could be like me. You know, I was lucky I had saved money. Um, so I have, I have some freedom, but I will always be a consultant from here on out. So I can, I don't, I don't know if I'd have your guts to be a full time, like somebody controlling me and just look them in the face and say, I quit. But as a consultant, I have no worries walking away from something. I'm never going to let anyone control me again. Uh, yes. Uh, ab absolutely. Uh, we got about less than 10 minutes here. And so um, so you you mentioned something about uh, being uh, in the music industry. So what, what was that like? You know, the cliches are true. And this is in the 90s when it was still very rock and roll and like, you, you know, a lot of partying, saw tons of shows. I think the best thing I loved about the music industry is we would get tickets for so many shows and I would go to anything. I saw so many shows of bands and artists I would not have otherwise seen. Um, it's very insular. So when you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out. Um, but it, you know, I worked at a, I started at a smaller, it was indie. They had just sold. That was really cool. It was very laid back. Um, but then I ended up at a large company and it was like, anyway, I could, I could have been in an accounting firm. So, you know, I screamed down the hall one day, I was in the marketing department at this label and I just screamed down the hall, we could be selling tampons and nobody would know the difference. Silence because it's true. You know, and they bring out their like, here's our marketing plan. Here's our superstar marketing plan. Here's our indie artist marketing plan. Like there wasn't creativity. There wasn't, I mean, my, my one boss spent, I think six months, almost every day, just trying to buy an apartment. She was buying an apartment. She wasn't working with the artists. She wasn't doing anything to try to help sell their records. She was buying an apartment. That's what it was like. Uh, I'm kind of uh, curious to know, how did you came up with the name, you know, of the book? Um, so Rock Gods, this these aliens buy a record company because back in the 90s um other countries corporations from other countries were buying out u.s record labels so they hatch a half human half a clone bot i called it half human half robot thing that they make into a superstar so that's the rock god and messy monsters is that the comedic characters the executive staff were all a bunch of messy monsters so I don't know if it's the best title. Doesn't have SEO, but I like it. It sort of fits it for me. I mean, what do you mean it does not have SEO? Uh, I think uh, Google. I mean, it's a unique title. Oh, thank you. you know, uh, the SEO algorithms would, you know, love to have this crawling on their search engines. We'll see. I hope so. I'll just go out there and Google well, it. Well, I mean, take it from a uh, take it from someone who has been in the industry for over twenty years. Oh, thank I know you. what I'm. I know what I'm talking about. Like, it's just you know, it's just one of those things that just came to me. It was called Rock Gods of Oct, and the record company is called Oct Records. I don't know why I came up with that. I just like this guttural spittiness of it. Um, but friends had told me way back when, don't know, no one can, and it was hard to pronounce. So 
when I republished it, I changed it to rock gods and messy monsters. Cause that made more sense to me and it's easier to pronounce. You know, and you know, I, I think you mentioned something that the music industry has been uh, corporized, you know, just like the publishing industry to where, you know, it you fell apart. I mean, it fell you, apart. You're not really, because I remember back in the day that, you know, uh, you had a lot of artists, you know, they were singer songwriters. They, you know, they really put their creativity and their lyric, you know, lyrics. Uh, some of them was like actual poetry. Yeah. You know, but when, you know, it started corporatizing, you, you know, itself, uh, they kind of like went along with the, you know, the culture. Okay, this is what you need to do, you know, in order to make us money. I you know, sat gotta... in meetings where that's all they talked about is how to make money. My boss, one of my bosses actually said, what could we do to take more royalties and every band should have a second job. They should not, they should not think they can live off this money, you know, and that's corporate music. I was all came in and, and I, and I will qualify it. The A&R people, which are the people that go out and find the bands, they tended to be pretty cool. The ones that I met were actually really into music. So not everybody is horrible in a major record company. Um, it's just, a, it's all about money when you're in a corporation. It's all about money. People have to meet numbers. There were executives who I don't think ever listened to the radio. They, when I was there, okay, I'm an assistant. I'm doing sampling clearances for the entire major record company. Nobody cared because they didn't think sampling would become anything. So if it was an indie band that were cool, I'd try, and it was always seemed to be Miles Davis tracks. I would have to identify on like Miles Davis album where it was that they were sampling and then charge them. So cool bands, I'd be like five bucks. If it was a large label, hundred thousand. And then finally they started seeing that this is, we can make money from this. So when I left, there's like nine lawyers now do it now, but like, they just didn't, they were, they were Napster came out and like all us, cause I was in my twenties then we're all like, Hey, this downloading internet thing is going to be big. They're all doing, let's sell ringtones of music from bands that we're like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> so it deserved to fall apart. And again, you know, indie, grunge, alt, I mean, a lot of really good, I mean, rap might've come out of frustration. I mean, I don't know it, when we get into rap and like newer music, I'm a little, I was, I was listening to classical. I left and sort of started listening to classical music. So but there was a, a lot of good came out of it. I just think that any writer or band who thinks they're going to sign with a major and make a lot of money, unless they have some kind of connection or deal going in, odds are they're not. And I used to tell people, if you get signed by a record company, look at your advances, all the money you're going to make, because odds are you're not going to make any more and make it a good one. And you you find yourself having to, you know, do something else, and you can't really be that your creative, you know, self. I might always be a robot. Uh, yeah. Well, in my book, the assistant when she comes in, all the assistants when they come in to work have to unzip their head and pull their brain out and put it in an urn on their desk because they're not allowed to think; they just have to take orders. No, I, I I can't get with that. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, we got to wrap it up here, but it's been it's been really nice uh, to to chat with you uh, on today, and you, certainly has cookie? certainly has some great information, you, you know, for us. And um, uh, and I'm I'm going to send you uh, my address so you can. Uh, Okay. You know, mail, mail me a book. I'm really interested, you know, in reading it. Sure. I would love to. Just make sure it's email me after and I'll send you one in the next couple of days. My Christmas oh, gift. My Christmas gift to you. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, and it's not a requirement. Uh, and it's not a requirement for, 
you know, book authors to, you know, send me a book. Uh, you know, you know, we don't do any incentives or charge anyone. Uh, As it should know. be. Um, it's my gift to you because I want to. Nobody else is obligated to do that do this i'm but. not gonna yeah i'm not gonna knock your uh i'm not gonna knock your blessing and i'm definitely not gonna knock your hustle <laughs> it's a it's a really good one now how can someone be able to uh you know get a hold of you like you oh. know like i know in the future you you know you may you know be in a capacity to where you know, you can help others publish their book. And, you know, I know that's coming. So, you know, let's just get that out right now. How they'll be able to reach you if, if they want to do that or if they want to purchase your book. Sure. So I'm on Facebook. It's Diane Hats dot author. Um, Rock and Odds. That's and with a Z. H-A-T-Z. Yes. I am... Um, my website is rockgodsatmessymonsters.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on all the usuals. So you can find my Substack. It's Diane Hats, H-A-T-Z dot Substack.com. Um, that's my newsletter that I put out. And really just go on Amazon, just Google Rock Gods and Messy Monsters. And it'll come up and you can get more information. And I think even in there, I have some, it won't link because Amazon doesn't do that. But there's, if you read through the whole thing, there'll be some links to how you can get in touch with me. Okay. Uh, and one last thing before we uh, uh, shut down. Now, it is a tradition here at the Austin Lead Broadcast section to where we have a guest to come on one of our four podcasts that our guests will provide the last word so diane what would be your last word one word or can i say like a sentence oh doesn't matter okay when you can sit outside in the sun and watch clouds float by no music no reading material no pets no people just sit and watch what happens with the clouds because you can find eternal peace in the sky. Wow. I'm speechless. And we're gonna just close it down right here. Happy holidays, Keith. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your schedule. Uh, to be with us. Uh, this is The Works. I'm Keith Williams, your host. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast family. As you know, we always record every Sunday evening, tip normally on Sunday evenings at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Uh, Central. Uh, but every now and then we have to make adjustments um, and so we don't mind, you know, doing that probably because I'm the principal podcaster and I can, you know, rearrange my schedule. So I'm not bound by corporate time. So we pretty much can do whatever we want in order to reach the audience that we would like, you know, to reach. So that's why we do what we do. And it's a public service. Uh, to all of our guests who want to be on as well as a public service to you, the listener and viewer. So thank you so much, everyone. Um, please tune in next time where we'll have another great guest. Until then, good evening. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. 
Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.